from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to sign up for the free email newsletter to get the latest episodes sent directly to your inbox every Tuesday, as well as updates and announcements for upcoming live streams. My guest today is a talented and fearless filmmaker. His new short film, Swept Under, is a terrifying horror film that combines fact and fiction by addressing the suppression of the Cambodian genocide by the mainstream media in order to deflect bad public relations from U.S. involvement. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Ethan Sue. Ethan, welcome to the show. Hey, Vince. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this sixth day of May 2023. I came across your short film, Swept Under, on Alter, and was really impressed by how much information, drama, horror, and action you were able to pack into this brilliantly produced short film, not to mention the illumination of historical facts that were figuratively swept under the rug. So I'm very excited to have you on the show today. Yeah, I mean, thanks for watching. Thanks for finding it on Alter. They've been such a great home for this short and it's been a long road. So we've been really excited to share it with everyone and, and hear everyone's thoughts and feedback. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. The film centers around a young adult man named Cameron who was adopted by an American family after escaping the Cambodian genocide as a child. You wrote in the Swept Under Companion Guide that your mother escaped from Cambodia with her family and was so traumatized that she won't talk about what happened, so you had to do a lot of research. Because of the nature of America's involvement and its obfuscation by mainstream sources, where does one go to do research on something like this? I love that question. The research for this project was so unique because of how many things had just been hidden or kind of forgotten about by history. And obviously, like, I think not having access to my family's history, just out of personal respect for that was a bit tricky as well. And kind of having to go through the back channels of Googling, of Wikipedia and kind of figuring that out. I think the place that was probably the most helpful was ironically the Richard Nixon Museum in Orange County. Really? Um, yeah, they're a great resource, I think. And, you know, this was like the height of COVID when we were writing it and producing it. So didn't get to go there in person, but the whole staff over there, they're really committed to sharing a history despite, you know, this dark, past. And I think they were very open with the newscast they sent me with all of the speeches um, they sent over. But some of the trickier things to to kind of dig up were uh, the Henry Kissinger interviews and kind of going through those transcripts. I, I probably went through probably over a thousand pages of just speech transcripts. And the Kissinger speeches were the most tied up in legal rights. And, and I think his estate definitely wanted to keep a very tight hold on on where those ended up. Mm. So didn't get access to those and would have loved to include them in the movie, but it ended up being just Nixon stuff. Um, but I think besides that, uh, yeah, went through hundreds of hours of, of archival footage from American broadcasts that I think it was both a very unique experience rewatching what the news used to be like and how how America used to view foreign politics and kind of contrasting that to to something like today but also you know like 
just as a fun note, all the commercial breaks were kept in. So it was like kind of a, a fun experience <laughs> watching like 1970s commercials for, for shaving blades or for like, you know, for like TV dinners and stuff like that. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was a really unique experience. So did you have to do like FOIA requests, like Freedom of Information Act type stuff? Yeah, I'd say like a little bit. Anything produced by the U.S. government is in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made it, our jobs a little easier, but we did have to really be selective with the footage that we were using. So, yeah, I mean, we learned so much along the way, just, you know, in regards to freedom of information and, and stuff like that. So, Okay. Well, in the movie, Cameron has just moved into a new home and is given a gift by his adopted sister, a rug that was made by a survivor of the genocide. The rug serves a few different purposes for the film's narrative. A portal into the realm of the dead, a visual representation of the victims of the atrocity in both waking life and the afterlife, as well as bearing a tag that indicates the U.S.'s complicity in the genocide. Finally, the entire rug is a metaphor for not only the minimization of the genocide, but in some cases, denial. Once you latched on to the metaphor swept under the rug, where did you get the inspiration for using an actual rug to convey the metaphor, facility, and visuals for the film? Yeah, um, I love how you phrased it. And I think what drew me to the phrase in the first place was that it was all-encompassing and it had multiple meanings. And I think was such an effective vehicle to talk about these issues. You know, in the case of using an actual rug, I think it was more of like, it was more of a fun factor. And I really wanted to show audiences something that they'd never seen before and also tell them a story that hopefully they'd never heard before. And I think there's so many films that can bring to life inanimate objects as these terrifying things. You know, something that we showed the crew very early on was um, Rubber, the film about the killer tire. There was also X-Day Hair Extensions, which is a film about killer hair extensions. So it was, <laughs> you know, all these films kind of use their inanimate objects as something greater, but also as more of just like, yeah, something to draw the audiences in. And I think it was just simply just kind of wanting to give the audience something that they had never seen before. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Cameron's character is portrayed as what's referred to as a 1.5 generation adoptee. Can you explain that concept to us? Yeah. So a 1.5 gener in a lot of refugee communities and particularly Cambodian American communities refers to someone who's born overseas. So in this case, Cameron was born in Cambodia or in a refugee camp in Thailand but who immigrated to America very early on in his life. So having really no prior memory of living in Asia. You know, for example, like my mother would be a first gen since she came over as a refugee. I would be a second generation American since I was born here, but someone who was kind of stuck in that limbo state of, you know, not only legally as a U.S. citizen kind of being in the middle, but also just culturally kind of stuck between two worlds. And, you know, I, I don't even think I would say stuck. I think I'd position it more as, I guess, kind of, that a, would be the kind best of a gray word. area. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a gray area, not really being able to define that properly. Mm. Okay. You mention in the guide, which listeners at home, you'll hear me referencing this guide quite a bit, and it will be linked in the description. You mentioned referencing the films of Ari Aster for some of the visuals, and I thought immediately of Hereditary when the scene Mm. began with the motion-sensing light. And the light has a deeper underlying meaning, which I'll get to next, but just as an implement to generate tension in a horror film, would you say that the motion-sensing light's effectiveness comes from its unreliability, resulting in a lack of control of the visibility of one's environment? And if not, what would you say makes it such a good tool to elevate the horror of a scene? Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up Ari Aster's filmography because I think it's been such an inspiration for me. And I, you know, I just recently saw Bo is Afraid, which was a I very, yeah, it's, it's his newest joint. It's a phenomenal, long experience. But, you know, even some of his earlier stuff, like The Strange Things About the Johnsons, his short film at AFI, that was like, that was such an integral watch, I think, for the crew and I, because it was like, it was such a visual story told told pretty simply and I think wove a lot of depth into its narrative. But, you know, speaking more on the motion lights, I think 
it was something that I definitely drew from personal experiences because at home, I have a motion censored light that always goes off when I'm taking out the trash. Uh, and so it's always like, you know, especially when I was younger, and this was back in Chicago, but especially when I was younger, I would always go as fast as I can to try to make that period of illumination mm-hmm. um, not get stuck in the darkness. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, I think it was like, I haven't seen a lot of motion lights used in that way, in particular horror films. And I think having that, that very grounded tool and just kind of using it to create tension kind of felt like a very organic thing to do, especially in, in a backyard, in a, in a new house. Mm-hmm. Well, additionally, according to the guy, the light was meant to explore the idea of visibility. The light only came on when Cameron was being beaten, which highlights the way the larger focus was placed on the genocide rather than the U.S.'s secret bombing. So can you tell us a little bit about the bombing and its obfuscation by the media? Yeah. Also, that aspect was something that came through the research of just seeing how, you know, a lot of today's generation knows about the genocide itself, but not necessarily the events leading up to it. And I think... You know, well, I mean, with horror films, I think light and darkness plays such a big role in what's scary and what's not scary. And I think adding another layer of that, of just like visibility, was very intriguing to me. And, you know, by the way, I think even when Cameron's under the rug and, and the camera flash kind of captures him, that was also very important to me because yeah. like, using the camera flash as a way of signaling that he's been you know, both physically captured, but also captured in like the photographic sense. I think it was just building off the layers of that and using what was on set and using our tools just to kind of flesh out that allegory. It was very important to me. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in the Q&A, which listeners at home I will also be linking to, that the creation of a horror film was a way to kind of Trojan horse the historical event into people's consciousness. Were you inspired by any previous films that accomplished the same goal? And if so, which ones? Yeah. Uh, oh, I feel the list can go, <laughs> the list can go a long, long way, but you know, not to say that these films Trojan horse in a lot of, you know, these messages that we see in swept under, but I think some of the films that did inspire swept under would be apocalypse now simply just as one of the most important war movies made in the 20th century. And its depiction of Southeast Asia with its iconic sound and imagery. I think other films that inspired it would be Walker, uh, the Alex Cox film from 1980s. And, you know, I think a lot of Spike Lee joints too, I think, do the right thing in the way that we're able to talk about race relationships in America, but using this small little street in Bed-Stuy. The list can go on forever. And I could, <laughs> I could probably talk about this for an entire podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of a side note with regard to Apocalypse Now. It's been forever since I've seen that movie. So when I was looking at the guide, you had referenced, I think, one of the shots as being inspired by Apocalypse Now. And I feel like I was looking at a picture of Cameron's view from the living room. Mm -hmm. Which one were you referencing? I can't remember. Yeah. So, you know, the first five or ten minutes or so of Apocalypse Now, there's the whole opening montage set to that Doors song, mm-hmm. set to the Jim Morrison song. And there's a shot particularly of uh, Martin Sheen's character looking up in his Saigon bedroom, up at the ceiling, and him staring at this spinning fan. But, you know, in terms of the audio of it all, the shot that preceded that was of a helicopter. And so oh, it was, yeah, yeah. so we could hear the helicopter as it slowly transitioned to the fan, into the fan. And oh, so... Okay. So the shot in Swept Under, that kind of reference point, was the shot inside the living room as we see the the black rotating fan. Mm, um, okay. And that was, you know, for me, kind of just the one reference to the film, but also to tie in a lot of elements of cinematic history. And yeah, like we're going to be breaking down not only the real history that happened, but also the cinematic histories of the representation of Southeast Asian people. Um, in American film and and, in American TV. So that was kind of the intention behind that. Gotcha. Well, in the story, Cameron was adopted by an American family, which I guess if you consider it one way is a form of help. 
Then he was given the rug, which was kind of pushed on him, at least as I saw it. He seemed like he really didn't want it, but his sister and apparently his adopted mother wanted him to have it. The rug ultimately brought him back to the genocide that he had escaped. Was this narrative meant to represent the U.S. providing help that ultimately contributed to the genocide? And what did you find with your research with regard to what America's role was in the atrocity? Because, you know, as you said, it's hard to find exactly what happened because it was literally and figuratively swept under the rug. But I've heard things from the attacks took out more civilians than they did the Khmer Rouge. And then I've heard weapons were left over that the Khmer Rouge then utilized. And then I've heard sources go so far as financial funding. Mm. So, yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think the idea of helping is such an interesting topic, particularly in this lens. And by the way, like, I think you hit it on the head. I think it's this complicated relationship of the sister and the mother, you know, that whole family helping adopt Cameron and saving him from what would have been a very difficult life in Cambodia, but also in America, perhaps not knowing all the time how their actions and how some microaggressions are kind of bringing him back to this place of trauma mm. that he might not necessarily want to re-explore. And obviously that's kind of what leads to his demise at the end. And, and that was kind of important for me to show because I think also... I have a very complicated history with that. And while uh, the Red Cross did help my mom get out of the refugee camp, it was most likely the American intervention that uprooted her family. Um, and to your point about the bombs killing a lot more civilians, I think that was also true. And America did, when the troops pulled out, left a lot of weaponry and artillery up for grabs for the Khmer Rouge regime to just take it and help take over the country. So... I wanted to make it not necessarily black and white, you know, and kind of show the nuance of, yeah, like sometimes in a twisted way, America can be helpful. I wouldn't be here if that wasn't the case. Um, and my life would be very different, but also to show that like, yeah, it's like, it's not always helpful in the ways that we think so. It can be kind of a uh, ham fisted attempt. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So when I started watching the movie, I immediately thought of Holiday in Cambodia by the Dead Kennedys. And I was surprised when I, I looked on the uh, soundtrack because, you know, I was into punk when I grew up in the 90s. I know they're not from the 90s. They're earlier. But, you know, we were into old punk. That was when the grunge thing was going on. And grunge, specifically like Nirvana, kind of evolved from punk. And uh, my best friend actually had Holiday in Cambodia on, I think it was a vinyl single or maybe an EP. I forget how it was released. I just remember yeah. seeing seeing the uh, the logo emblazoned on it. So it was a blast from the past when I saw the soundtrack for the film. So I was curious to know, have you had any contact with Jello Biafra with regard to this film, considering from what I read, you said it was somewhat of an inspiration for the film? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> again, very, very happy you brought that up. I think, you know, the song Holiday in Cambodia, I didn't grow up in the 90s, but I did really love punk rock in college. And I kind of had this whole phase where, you know, it was the only thing I listened to. And I think the song that stuck me with me the most, even before the inception of Swept Under, was Holiday in Cambodia, just because it was so fun to listen to. And I think it was like, there's so many layers to the storytelling of the song that it was, yeah, it's probably the biggest inspiration on the story of this film. Yeah, but no, I never had any interactions with Jello. <laughs> I think like if I were to like reach out or if we were to connect, I'd tell him just thank you for bringing such a complicated topic to the American public and making such a fun song about it. I probably listened to every recording there is, every cover there is on YouTube. And, and yeah, you know, it was very funny because one of the first film festivals that we played at overlooked in new orleans there was like a filmmakers party with a live band and just out of coincidence they started playing this song and it was like i think not even two seconds into the song i snapped out of the conversation i was in and i was like oh my gosh this is holiday uh so it, <laughs> yeah so like to say this this song has had a tremendous impact on swept under is an understatement yeah it's funny how music can evoke such a physical emotional mental response like all at once yeah yeah and, seriously yeah i was gonna tell you I'm, I'm over here jacking around with my phone just on a lark i messaged him on uh instagram what did i put 
Great short film about Cambodian genocide that got inspiration from Holiday in Cambodia. We'll mm. have the writer director on the podcast soon, and I left a link for the movie. Yeah. I'm not, I you know, he doesn't follow me, so it's going to be like in his general and probably never yeah. get seen. But who knows? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Hey, just, I, I, I appreciate be, it. <laughs> that'd be crazy as hell if he messaged me back, dude. It's awesome. When's the episode yeah. coming out? <laughs> oh, might have to do a sequel podcast with Jello on. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> Well, so the rug itself with the human faces is, according to the guide, referencing the infamous portraits. And, you know, I got to admit ignorance. I wasn't sure what portraits you were talking about. So I got online and did some digging and came mm -hmm. across the Tual Slang prison, which, from what I understand, was more of a torture center than a prison. And I gather the portraits had to do with the documentation of the prisoners. Can you kind of tell us about the portraits in the prison? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, go back a little bit. The Tulsling Genocide Museum now sits where the S-21 prison was. The short of it is it was uh, the most infamous torture prison of the regime's genocide. I think about 18,000 people were kept there and by the end of it, only a handful, I think maybe 12 to 18 people survived um, at the end of this four-year period. And yeah, every victim who passed through who was processed was photographed very meticulously. A lot of information was taken down about them, and many of them were tortured into giving false confessions that could justify their murder. I mean, I think it's the most heinous place of this genocide, and I think representing this in Swept Under was a way for me not only to not let people forget about this, but also I think the way in which the portraits are kept or have been preserved in the museum in what we see in these grids of, of headshots. I think that was a very unique way that I hadn't seen any other genocide or human atrocity captured in the history of the world. And I think translating that to the way we see the rug and how the heads are arranged in also a very similar grid was very important to me. And I think it was just because we, we had the chance to personify all of the victims who died in that prison, you know, and for context in the film, we censored out all the real victims' faces and identities and their tags because, you know, a lot of these families are alive in Cambodia or in the world. And I didn't want to bring back that memory for those families who might be watching this film. So it was important for me to censor their identities and to transpose their suffering onto our fictional faces in the rug, but kind of keep that same arrangement of the heads of the portraits. So was there any rhyme or reason to the grids, the way they kind of grouped them together? Do you mean like the museum? Like No, just like um, the way they were photographed. Was that the prison doing that, or is that just the way they're displayed at the museum? Well, so the prison photographed everyone, but the museum has kind of preserved it. And in any history book you'll pick up that mentions S21, you'll probably see the photos at the museum that are arranged in these grids. Okay. Um, and yeah, you know, I think it was just, I haven't been to the museum, but I think looking at a lot of the photos online and, and looking at like a lot of like walkthroughs on YouTube and, and stuff like that. It's astonishing because I think just the volume of all of these faces was so heartbreaking to watch. And yeah, just, just capturing that sense of tragedy was something that I really wanted to include. Okay. Well, the coup de grace of the film is the reveal of the Made in America tag on the rug, followed by a few of America's other ham-fisted attempts at helping. So when you did your research what metric or heuristic did you use to kind of suss out the truth from the lies? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. I think the biggest metric was just like recognizing bias. And I think that came through a lot of watching the older news archives. And the first thing you learn in, in any research class or, or any basic writing class is recognizing bias of your sources. And I think it was very easy to do it with the older footage having a lot of the context we have now in the present. So I think that was a big part of it. I think also a big part of that was like the footage that made it in the film was not necessarily the most gory or the most traumatizing images 
that were included in a lot of these broadcasts. I think, you know, even the way that an American cameraman will film villagers in Cambodia, it's very different than how perhaps they would film themselves. And I think it was using particular shots that didn't have to invoke this power dynamic or a lens of suffering. And I think it was representing Cambodia and a lot of people who looked like me, I guess in a way that didn't have to make it hard for Asian Americans to watch this film, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, one of my favorite metrics or heuristics, I don't know which one you would consider it, but uh, if you want to hide something, put it in a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, so the editing, speaking of the footage you were talking about of not only Nixon, but the actual war itself, the editing was really top-notch. How long did the post-production for the film take? And can you talk about the people you worked with when it came to editing? Yeah, uh, took a while. Took about, I think, nine months of post-production. Wow. Yeah, for a film this brief, that was the most surprising thing for me in the whole process, I think. The biggest hurdle was just sequencing the archival footage at the very end, and especially as we got more footage, thinking about how to weave that in. There's so much that didn't make it into the film, and, and I think I'd like to cut something together that kind of reflects all of the moments that just didn't make the final cut. Some of the most key collaborators in this portion were my co-editor, Sam Gill, and he has such an eye for story and for just like the general narrative that every time I think I got too close to the subject matter, too close to the film, he'd be very objective and he'd just be, you know, like we're at point A and we have to hit point B and this is how we do it. And this is what we use. And I think that part of the sequencing was probably the toughest part, but we would be nowhere without the music and the sound design. And I think on the music side, our composer, Alex Mansour was so integral to that process because he was able to use a lot of the sounds of American marching bands of general patriotic music found in the West and twist that to kind of help propel us through through that historical montage and also kind of foreshadow those elements really early on in the movie. The sound design was also just paramount as we built out what the rug sounded like and how we could kind of stretch that through. We talked about Apocalypse Now earlier, and I think using the iconic sounds of helicopters and, and bombers in a very contained setting of this apartment was also something that we wanted to do really early on. Mm -hmm. You're saying you had a composer that composed a score specifically for this film? Yes. Yes. Awesome. And how did you come to hook up with this guy? Alex Mansour, I guess you said? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Alex, I've been such a fan of his work early on. We both went to USC together, not in the same years, but I was such a big fan of the other student films that he had composed for. And, you know, when I first brought this to him, I don't remember what the first interaction was, but I think I told him I wanted to like take a Sousa march and just flip it on its head and make it the scariest thing ever. And so big point of reference on that front was, yeah, like classic American marches Stars and Stripes Forever was probably the thing we listened to the most on that front, but also mixing that in with a lot of more avant-garde scores that use a lot of brass. And yeah, Alex, to his credit, just took it and ran with it, took this crazy idea and just, you know, made one of, I think, the most horrifying, one of the most nuanced musical cues that I've ever heard. So it was a really awesome working with him. Awesome. So the question on my mind... Where's the rug now? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had, you know, just for production purposes, we had two rugs. One as, as our prop in the backyard that was like a little cleaner than our second rug, which was the, the rug we end up seeing all the faces on. And, you know, so we had to cut out holes in every spot. So an actor or a, a background actor could, could stick their head in and sit there for a little bit. Those two rugs, unfortunately, were tossed out, uh, they were just too dirty uh, to really keep anywhere. I tried my best to clean them and to beat them like Cameron does in the film, but mm. it, it just I think I would be out. terrified to beat the beat the rug <laughs> with a bat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but but like I think you know, as the festival circuit did pick up, we bought a slightly smaller rug that we painted the same same way. 
So that's now in my closet. And what I'll do with it, you know, we'll see. <laughs> it's, it's just just happy to keep it for now. Yeah. Well, I know you said your mother won't talk about her experience in Cambodia. So mm -hmm. if it's not too personal, how was your production of the film received by your mother? And has she seen the film? Yeah. So she's seen it. She's not one for horror movies. So it was a little, <laughs> I was a little nervous to show it to her on a couple fronts. I think the first time she watched it, she was very proud. And I think it was always difficult for us to connect about this subject. I always wanted to respect her privacy and her family's sentiment about it. And so I think what's unique about Swept Under is that it's, it's a very historical film at that. And making it allowed me to research a lot of the history that even my mom didn't know because she had a very personal connection to it. While not reliving her trauma, I think it allowed us to connect on the subject in a very diplomatic kind of way. And yeah, I mean, all my films come from a very personal place. And I think this was just something that allowed me to reconnect with that side of my mom's experience, which has been really, really fulfilling. Awesome. Yeah. Well, where did you learn the craft of filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I've always wanted to be a filmmaker, whether I really knew it or not. When I was younger, my dad, he owns a lot of bootleg CDs from Asian horror movies, you know, films that I don't even remember the names of, but I remember so many particular scenes just because of how striking they were. So I think I grew up on a lot of international cinema without subtitles, by the way. So I was just kind of looking at the pictures. In high school, I roped in one of my English teachers to make videos with me for the school broadcasting program. And I think it was just the confluence of everything and just, I don't know, like a passion for storytelling that got me really invested in it. And, you know, obviously now, um, having gone through film school, it's just been a lot of absorbing a lot of movies. And, and not only that, I think that one of the most important parts about filmmaking is, is reading, is wanting to learn more about the world. So, yeah, it kind of comes from everywhere, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the uh, budget for the movie and how did you raise the funds? Yeah, so budget for the movie, I think, came in at about $8,000. Most of that money went to paying our very talented crew. In terms of fundraising, we crowdfunded the whole thing. So we really went to reach out to... Cambodian American communities, Cambodian communities. And we had so many donors who came on board who I had never met. I've been so indebted to them because a $5 here, $5 there, that helped bring this to life. And when we're working with such a small crew, it was the most important thing to have people who were really passionate about it. You know, so I think everyone from the donors who worked in it to the crew, I'm just, yeah, so, so thankful. Awesome. Yeah. Well, with regard to the budget, what was the biggest budgetary restraint and how did you overcome it? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest budgetary restraint, ironically, was the rug. Uh, oh, okay. the, the rug we bought for like 70 or so bucks on rugs.com because they had, after surveying a lot of rugs, they just had the most shag to the rug. <laughs> that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. But about that, it was, it was making it look as scary as possible. You know, and I think like, doing all the practical effects with the rug and, you know, how the hand shoots up from under it, which is my hand, by the way. Mm. Um, but also, you know, for the big shot near the end of all the heads kind of mounted on the rug, we didn't want to blow all of our money on that one shot. So it's figuring out the cheapest, safest way to achieve that. Our production designers, Emily and Jordan, they had a blast kind of coming up with ideas. And, you know, we came up with this very sturdy PVC pipe rig that suspended the rug from a couple of stands. And, and we had our actors, like I said before, like stick their heads in on three different rows that we ended up compositing in post-production. So we just got really creative to save money. And, and I think that's my favorite part of filmmaking too, is just, it's just problem solving. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing I've always wondered, you know, like you're talking about the PVC structure device that you developed, just special effects in general. Is it kind of like being a chef, like there's some basics that you learn and then you just kind of have to create, you know, just use the creative process to solve problems? Is it even part of, I guess I assume it's probably part of film school, right? 
Yeah. You know, everyone's film school experience is different. I know that I learned a lot of these special effects and practical effects, just making movies with my friends in high school and watching YouTube videos. (laughs) I think from that perspective, I'm very self-taught. And a lot of the techniques that we use in this film were just things that I picked up along the way, things that I was just like hungry to learn and ended up learning and kind of developing my own way of approaching it. Big references were just like as blockbustery as they are, like Chris Nolan films, I think, do a wonderful job of keeping everything practical. And so I challenged our crew by way of saving money, like, how can we do these things in camera? And how can we make it a really involved experience for everyone on set? I've been on sets where we shoot a lot of green screen stuff. And it's not always, you know, it's not engaging because no one except a few people on set can really see the full vision that's going to be executed. But when you're doing it on camera, like I think a fun anecdote is like we shot all the night scenes overnight on a, I think it was on a Sunday in the summer. So we rolled over into Monday and I think it was about three or 4 a.m. And I could sense the crew was getting really tired as an all night shoots kind of happen. And so we pushed up the shot of my hand grabbing Alvin's head through the rug because I knew that would kind of peak up the energy to get us to the finish line. And I think it was because we were doing it practically that allowed the crew to kind of have that burst of much needed energy to kind of push through that night. So, yeah. Okay. Well, how long did it take to shoot the film? And judging from what you just said, I'm assuming the film was shot outside and the elements, did you ever have issues with the weather? Yeah. So the film, film took two and a half days to shoot. And then the half day was dedicated to all of the under the rug stuff, which is very fun to film. In terms of like shooting outside, we shot at my aunt's house. Mm-hmm. So it was very easy to convince her. But, and she was so she was so accommodating <laughs> to a whole lot of us just kind of taking over the house for a weekend. But I'd say the, the biggest natural element that we had to face was just the traffic, which is the traffic <laughs> right outside of her house because she's right. kind of, you know, on the on the border of a pretty busy street. So I was just kind of like waiting for the cars to pass. And then, you know, once we had a moment between the red lights of that intersection, we would be like, all right, let's do it. Like we got to get it. And it ended up working out. And by the way, like that was like another way we saved money too. Cause of course we could have like rented a location for a whole weekend, but I think it just would have been just too much money that I knew that we could pull something off like that in, in a place that we were familiar with. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, tell me about your screenwriting process. How did the movie evolve from your mind to the script? Mm. For this one in particular, I wanted to be very flexible with it because I knew that the documentary footage would play such a big part in the movie that, you know, I didn't always necessarily know where it was going because the whole third act is just, it's a blending, it's a meshing of these two worlds that we've seen and you know, I think earlier on, it was just building out this allegory enough to where we could flesh it in later through post-production and, and adding the documentary footage. So, yeah, I mean, I think in a very unique way, the screenwriting process <laughs> was carried throughout until the final day of post-production. Yeah, it just kept evolving through every cut. I think it's changed a lot, even from the page, I think, just because of all the documentary footage that was added in after the fact. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, tell me about the star of the film, Alvin Heng. How did he come to be in the film? And did he report any change within himself after doing the film? Yeah, I mean, Alvin, finding Alvin was a very interesting challenge. So I live in LA and Long Beach, which is just south of LA proper, has the biggest population of Cambodian people outside of Cambodia, the country. Oh, And so, you know, that was also a big part of why we wanted to tell the story in LA because it was just, you know, it would be for the community in that sense. But, you know, finding Alvin was, was tricky though, because I think not a lot of Cambodian Americans are in the entertainment business or even actors at that point. I personally reached out to, I think a dozen or so Cambodian actors that I had found online. And by the way, like that was, an amazing experience because I got connected to so many talented Southeast Asian actors. Al Vincent's in self-tape. And yeah, it just, he just felt right for the role, you know, and, and, and even talking with him, I think we rewrote a couple of different aspects of Cameron's character to kind of meld with who Alvin was as a person. 
And also, you know, a lot of the background actors who were the heads on the rug, they were actually actors that we had met through this whole casting process. So it's all very organic. You know, it was also very fun to just get everyone in a room together and be like, wow, like, you know, we are doing something really special here and just, you know, really appreciate everyone who made it out. So did I understand right that Alvin and others were sending in video of themselves, like reading yeah. script? Or? Reading the script, yeah. yeah okay. So, you know, I sent him over a couple lines of Swept Under and, and they'd record themselves and send it in. And I think we hopped on like a live audition uh, mm-hmm. a couple of times and, and that's kind of how we got it sorted out. Nice. Yeah. Well, you uh, alluded to him earlier. The sound design was amazing. Mm. And it's something that I'm getting more familiar with the more that I interview filmmakers. And I thought it was really cool how you included the finalized waveform in the guide so you could see how the escalation of the emotion of the film was, in a sense, being manipulated by the sound design. Mm-hmm. So how did you hook up with your sound designer, Ryan Vaughn, and how do you as a director give input to the sound designer so they can create the intended effect? Yeah. So Ryan Vaughn, we were introduced by a former teacher of mine, Mitch Costin, who's such an angel. I think Ryan had worked closely with her at some point. And Brian was, I think, just looking to sink his teeth into a really fun horror project and was very happy that it could be swept under. I think working with Ryan taught me a lot of things because he's such a technically proficient person at the soundboard. And I think he has a very specific intuition about what needs to go in what moment and in what kind of sound, like the quality of a sound should be in this moment. So it was very fun working with someone with such attention to detail. So very proud to say, I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the direction I gave him was just an emotion I wanted to elicit. And he kind of had the tools and the clarity to create that. Sound designing this film was probably like my most memorable moments of just, you know, of just making films because it often just be the two of us in a dark room at a soundboard, just spitballing ideas to each other and trying to make it as involved of an experience for someone who's watching it in a theater or, you know, we even did a whole remix for when it came out on Alter because I knew that people would be watching it on their iPhones, on their computers. And so it was very important for me to have that experience translated in a different way from theater to screen. And so, you know, a lot of the things that we changed are very subtle, but I think make for, for a better overall experience. And it was just, yeah, it was just so much fun just tossing ideas back and forth and evolving as we went. And as we watched more movies, especially over this nine month period of, of post-production, we were just constantly inspired by new films, by new filmmaking techniques we had seen. And it was probably one of the most organic, enjoyable process. Listeners at home, I, I apologize for getting specific here, but I work a lot with audio. So you've got my interest peaked. Yeah. As far as transitioning from theater to, you know, watching on your iPhone, are we talking about like the way you EQ the audio spectrum or how? Yeah, I mean, we did change EQ on a couple lines to boost them up. I, I think particularly when like cameras on the mids to mm-hmm. make it more intelligible. Okay. I'm exactly, sorry, exactly. listeners at home. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we love to nerd out here. Yeah, I know. I, know. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to nerd out. <laughs> um, but yeah, but. Totally the, the EQ stuff, but also, you know, we made a lot of creative decisions that changed how the film sounded. Like I think, for example, the big beating scene when Cameron is getting hit with the baseball bat and we're kind of just watching him from above the surface, that scene was a lot quieter in a theater because it was almost more enjoyable to hear the audience gasp along with, with each successive hit but because because that's also a big communal experience watching it with a bunch of people but I think when you're watching it on altar for example you're probably at home in the dark or you're probably at work and I wanted to make that louder and make it more horrifying in that way because I think you know I don't know what someone is listening to this film on it could be an iPhone it could be these headphones it could be you know, you could be with a bunch of background noises playing. And so I think I just wanted to make it a universal experience for everyone, you know? Yeah. And so, so yeah, so it did change. 
I imagine you have to probably watch the look. Well, I don't know what kind of theater you were showing it in, but if it was like a mainstream theater, I imagine you have to kind of watch the lows. Cause I mean, I, I went, yeah, and yeah. Saw, <laughs> I went and saw a movie not so long ago and I felt like I was resting my head on a subwoofer. I was like, Jesus Christ, my whole body's <laughs> vibrating. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, totally, you know, I think it was for every medium that we mixed it to, it was just, yeah, it was just kind of learning that new landscape. And, you know, this film has a very low frequency, particularly like inside the rug. And so I think it's, mm-hmm. so we had to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this film was obviously not an amateur attempt. And like the filmmakers that I have interviewed, you know, they always say, yeah, my first film was shit, you know? And so I made another one and it was shit too, but not quite as bad. (laughs) You know, they always, but you know, what I'm looking at is obviously not an amateur attempt. So what kind of experience do you have prior to this that prepared you to take on the role of both writer and director and do it brilliantly? Thank you. You know, I think the most formative thing was just, making films in high school with friends and, you know, very low budget and just kind of working all the kinks out that way. But I think the thing that has made me learn the most about filmmaking was actually the pandemic. Mm. I was in film school at that time of lockdown and quarantine. And so we were expected to make films completely virtually. And it was really difficult at first because I think my, I love being on set and I love having this physical interaction with the actors, with the crew and I, I think I really feed off that energy, but working on a laptop in an apartment, having to really only use your voice and just verbally talking someone through a scene, that was the most challenging thing to do. And I think really taught me how to communicate with actors, how to communicate with a crew in the most minimal sense. So yeah, you know, as difficult as that time was for everyone, it was very illuminating just in the way of learning a new set of soft skills for filmmaking. But I've made plenty of bad films. Don't worry. No, have you? (laughs) So you have kind of started off like other filmmakers. You've made bad films and learned from them. And it just so happened that that you've had so much experience that once you got to this point, you were able to take, what would you say, (laughs) $8,000? Yeah. $8,000 and just... Just run with it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, the production and release of the film seemed really well organized. I mean, you even have a guide that I've been referencing throughout the episode and a recorded Q&A to go with it. So as a director, what skill set would you say you need that an aspiring filmmaker might not consider or suspect? Yeah, you know, I think just to mention first about the guide and the Q&A, it was very important very early on to have pieces of physical media to accompany the film as learning tools, but also just as a commemoration of all the hard work that we've all put in. So a big shout out to Maria Takigawa and Usa Ban, who were like really, who've become such close friends of mine through just working through creating all these companion pieces. For aspiring filmmakers, I think the most important quality to have is just being curious about the world. I think for Swept Under and, and in general, so much inspiration came from world history, the stuff that really happened, but also we referenced a lot of cinematic histories of how communities have been represented in film and throughout the course of cinema and trying to contest that as best we could in this film. And I think we read so many nonfiction books and obviously through all the research of transcripts and archival footage, it was always just wanting to learn more about the world and also learning about a lot of the communities that have just been forgotten to history. So we also interviewed a lot of survivors to try to get just as broad of of a sense of the subjects that we were approaching. So yeah, just be curious and not only within the film world, you know, consume more than that, I think, because you'll find that there are so many things to learn that have never made it on camera or behind camera. And I think that was something that I really wanted to bring to that realm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you not only need to be creative and have artistic vision, but you should definitely have the skill set of being able to do effective research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, this particular question is very, uh, interests me quite a bit. 
Which director inspires you the most when it comes to technical skill? And which one inspires you the most when it comes to artistic vision? Oh, that's a really great question. And um, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very tricky question, too, because I think it I think it changes every now and again. But I think, you know, consistently, I think in terms of a technical standpoint, I think I've been inspired by a lot of South Korean cinema. I think Bong Joon-ho is an obvious choice. His film, Memories of Murder, I think has had one of the most profound effects on me as someone who wants to make movies. And that's such a standout. I think another technical director from South Korea is Park Chan-wook. I think he's got such a deliberate sense of camera movement and lighting and staging that is so special to watch. And yeah, in terms of like, from an artistic standpoint, Spike Lee has always been very high up there for me, I think. I had mentioned Do the Right Thing earlier, and I think that film, watched when I was pretty young, and has always stuck with me as, as one of the most important films that I've experienced. I think everything he does in that film and how he's able to have all these intersecting characters and all these intersecting communities just clash and talk about all these social issues so organically through that story was just brilliant and something I think about very often. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well... I always hear from uh, any kind of artist, specifically with the folks that I interview, whether that be novelists or screenwriters or directors, that every project is a learning process. So what did you learn from the production of this film, maybe by making a mistake or maybe by coming up against something that you hadn't anticipated that you will be sure to remember and to apply to your next film? Hmm. I think that the most important thing I learned was just how long it takes to make a film, a short film, you know, even at that, I think, you know, obviously it took nine months of very hard involved pre-production. And and even after that, I think doing the festival circuit and kind of getting all these companion materials made to properly represent and to properly show the film around was also very important. And I think it's very naive to say now, but I'd love to have started everything a week earlier or even a couple of weeks earlier just to kind of get a jump on that. So I think just allocating more time is probably something that I'll do for everything from now on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when the average person hears about how long it takes to make, you know, what's the runtime, like nine minutes and it's, it's nine minutes. Yeah. Nine minutes. And it's just under 10, right? Isn't it? Nine yeah. minutes and some change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the amount of work. I mean, I'm sure you can do something that's nine minutes long that looks like shit very quickly, but, something, <laughs> you know, but a good film, just all of the aspects that the average person doesn't think of that go into mm-hmm. it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, what is the most unusual or surprising feedback you've had from the screening of the film at the various film festivals? Mm, yeah, I think something that still uh, surprises me and, and also, you know, reading the altar comments too, it's very fascinating because the inclusion of all the country names at the very end, that was a very late addition to the editing process. And I think including the other countries that America has, you know, in your words, hand-fistedly tried to help, but failed in some way or another. I mean, we added that right after Kabul fell in 2021. And when people at film festivals or people on Alter comment or reach out and they're like, oh, like, thank you so much for putting El Salvador or Nicaragua in the very end to represent my family's history, to represent my history. That's always like just so rewarding in a very vindicating way because you know, at the end of the day, I don't know who is watching this film. I don't know how it's going to connect with people, but being able to create those links between communities that have suffered together who may not know of each other's struggles or history. I think that's what ultimately I wanted Swept Under to do is just bridge as many communities as possible to show that in this one instance, history played out this way, but there are so many other instances of these atrocities being committed in one way or another. And I think being able to open up those channels of communication has been very, very rewarding. Yeah, I can see that particular point of the movie where you start kind of laying out the different wars and, um, as I said, ham-fisted attempts at helping. Um, It's done in such a way and it's such a penultimate part of the film where the viewers 
attention is just hyper-focused that it has way more impact than the time it's actually there. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's maximum impact the way and the time that you placed it. So that was a very, very solid technique you used. Yeah. So what is the life of Ethan Sue like outside of filmmaking? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of watching movies, uh, a lot of like just film watching re- instead of <laughs> filmmaking. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> a lot of reading about stuff I'm interested in at the time or something that I'm working on right now or whatever. But, you know, something that I picked up recently was ceramics, wheel throwing ceramics, particularly. And yeah, it was something, it was a class that I took my very last semester of college and just got really into it. My girlfriend and I will go to the studio just make vases, cups, bowls, whatever do you do we the, kind of... Do you do the ghost thing from the movie <laughs> Ghost? <laughs> we joke Play about the it. song, oh my. Oh my we, you know, we joke about it all the time, but, you know, I'm no Patrick Swayze, so <laughs> yeah, it, it, it feel like sacrilege to do that. Uh, uh, but, but that is something that we just like joke about um, frequently. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, besides that, I think it's just kind of alternating that and, and just seeking out new experiences in life and, and just learning more is just something that that i'm just constantly wanting to do all right yeah well final question sir what is the most important thing to take away from swept under even if you were aware of the genocide before seeing the film yeah i think having a bit of distance from it now now that it's released and i haven't had to really show it reach out about it to anyone anymore i think I think I just want people to really question and interrogate the truth of what they've been told, of what they've learned, because I think there is so much bias going on in the world right now. And I think finding your own truth and really laying down the hard questions is what I had to do for this film, is what the whole crew and cast had to help with. And I think there's much more to be discovered. And I think that there's much more to learn from what already exists out there. So just finding your truth. Mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ethan, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Vincent. Thank you so much, man. It's been, it's been really great. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers know about? No, I just I had a really great time on here. This is one of the most thorough interviews I've ever done and really happy to do it. So listen to the Dark Mind podcast, everyone. Now, hell yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> all right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Ethan, thank you again for joining me. Thanks, man. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday because I will be interviewing a veritable giant in the indie horror community, so don't miss it. Until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Yeah, I was undercover, wrote me off like the others, but I had secrets inside. You didn't pay attention, like an experimental, you're gonna pay for your crimes. I'll change your perspective, I'll teach you a lesson, uh...